Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, and I'm going to read 4 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, than an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your spirit that illumines your word to those who have the spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would, again, do that work of illumining your word that we may meditate truly upon it and be built up and conform to the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Be seated. So it's Christmas Day, and the Lord's Day. And most of us have a bunch of gifts yet to open this morning and a feast prepared perhaps for this afternoon or evening, but I suppose some of you couldn't wait, right? Let's see a show of hands for those who ripped into those gifts already. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Okay, that's a lot. You guys need to learn self-control. This is, this is weakness on your part. Um, it's hard to wait, though, isn't it? It's so hard to wait. Um, the, the Magi brought gifts to Jesus and his parents, and uh, the Father brought uh, and gave us the gift of his Son in the flesh. So giving gifts to one another is a wonderful uh, commemoration of those gifts and Jesus as the ultimate gift, right? It's a good and godly tradition, and it's just a lot of fun. It's, it's really hard to wait. But what what a wonderful gift this year that we can interrupt our gift giving with, uh, with worship corporately, and it's been sweet. It's been wonderful to be with my brothers and sisters this morning and sing God's praises. And so, um, I wanted to focus briefly upon uh, this, this statement Inspired by the Holy Spirit in um, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Galatians. We learn exactly what this day is all about, right? Of course, we could go to the Gospels and we could read about the events that took place uh, during the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, the angels' visit to Mary, and also to Joseph in a dream the trip uh, that 
they, uh, that, that Mary took to visit Elizabeth and Zacharias, the travel to Bethlehem, the birth and the swaddling and the laying of the child in a feeding trough, right, in a manger, and the, the chorus of angels that appeared to uh, the shepherds, and then those shepherds being just giddy and going to see Jesus and, and bowing down to worship Him and seeing Him sitting there again in a feeding trough, the Almighty God in, in a structure made to feed animals. And then those, those shepherds going home, glorifying and praising God, getting back to their flocks, getting back to their charge. Those are historical events, right, laid out in the inspired Word of God. These reports that we read of here in our Word are more trustworthy than any other historical record you have ever read, and um, they are more, more historically accurate than anything that's ever been recorded. Not merely because of the care that was taken um, as they were transmitted down through the ages and came to us, right? The care that um, was taken to bring them to future generations. But here's why they're, here's why they're um, trustworthy. Because they are inspired by God himself. These words here are not like other words. These are inspired, and the word inspired means breathed out by God. They're breathed out of His mouth. They came forth from God Almighty. Breathed out by God. And so Christians through the ages have received these words as the record of actual history and the culmination of God's plan to redeem for Himself a people for His own possession. The culmination of God's plan to save His chosen people from their sins, through a miraculous incarnation of, well, incarnation, a godly life, the agonizing death, and the glorious resurrection of His only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Laid out here. Just like some of you are anxiously, well, not many apparently, anxiously awaiting those opening of gifts, the people of God were anxiously awaiting their Messiah. The prophets had announced that he was coming. It would, it would have been difficult, although Israel did it, to not see what was laid out in Scripture, all those prophecies of Jesus coming. It's a trope in the Old Testament Scriptures. Isaiah, back in the 8th century B.C., announced it explicitly. And we've heard this passage around this time of year, right? The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil... For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. And then what comes next? 
for a child will be born to us. Right? A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so you see in that prophecy... A lot about Jesus and his kingship and his rule. And perhaps a a misinterpretation of that very passage made the people of Israel in the first century, as they suffered under Roman occupation, look for the wrong kind of Messiah. Right? A warrior Messiah that would take up the sword and slay those godless Romans. Um, That is not how things turned out, and certainly not how things started for the Messiah at his birth. Uh, We can't ignore the humble, even the humiliating start to the work of Jesus at his birth, of the Messiah at his birth. And yes, there were wonders, angels, angel choruses, dreams, stars. But the overwhelming sense we get of the events surrounding the incarnation of the Son of God is just plain ordinariness. It's just average. And the overwhelming impression one gets of the whole life of Christ, honestly, is its simplicity. It was a very simple life. Yes, there's the miraculous. Yes, he did those things, but otherwise... An ordinary life. He did heal, he did perform miracles, but he was not like a superhero, right, that brought down nations and decimated cities, you know. And yet, dear brothers and sisters, the birth of Jesus Christ was, as our passage in Galatians says, the fullness of time. The fullness of time. Time had been pregnant up till that point, and then, and then time gave birth. What does the phrase mean, the fullness of time? One commentary I read said that it was the fullness of time in the religious realm, right? John the Baptist had been buzzing about uh, whether the, you know, whether he was the Messiah even as he announced the coming Messiah. People were confused about that, but every, there's some buzz going on about the coming Messiah. And so one commentary said it was about the religious, the fullness of time in the religious realm, the cultural realm, right? Greek culture had brought together much of the world. And, and then uh, the political realm, the Romans had put together this uh, stupendous uh, thing, uh, a nation we can call it that, of a hundred million people. And so, um, and so you've heard the point made before. We could make the point that it was the perfect time for Christ to come for all those reasons, for language and culture and transportation and, and all those things coming together, um, all of which led to the spread of his name, undoubtedly. 
But the fullness of time means simply this. Jesus came not simply at the right time, but he came according to God's plan. Now stop and think about that. We, we have to, we have to um, it's, it's sort of inconceivable for us, but we have to try, right? We have to try because God made his plan when? Before the foundation of the world. God made his plan before time even existed. God made this plan within himself, the three in one, the one in three, making this plan, right? And so that plan started in eternity, and now, now in the fullness of time, it's carried out in time um, because of the eternity of that plan and the fulfillment of that plan in time, it must be described as the fullness of time. Because it started in eternity and breaks into, this, this, uh, into our world, into the creation. And that's the fullness of time. This time, those days in which Christ took on the flesh at conception and was born, was the turning point in all of human history. It's the fullness of time. God with us. Stop and think about that. God with us, the fullness of time. Calvin, John Calvin reflects on this phrase and said this in, in one of his sermons. He says, what does he mean by the fullness of time? He is referring to a time which God has appointed according to his will and not a time that man would choose simply because men are not competent to judge the best time. We must submit to God and delight in that which he has established. This is what Paul was referring to when he described the time that God sent his only son into the world as the fullness of time. So the birth, the time of the birth of Jesus Christ was not arbitrary. Rather, it was planned by God in the council of redemption. The council of redemption is this I mean, what it, how do you talk about it? It's, it's God determining before creation what to do, what his will is, who he is. I mean, it's according to who he is. The theologians call this council of redemption the pactum salutis. Happened even before the creation of the world. The father knew his work. The son knew his work. The spirit knew his work. And as it relates to the rescuing of mankind from its bondage to sin by the birth of the Son of God as man, that predetermined plan burst into this world at that time some 2,000 years ago. I mean, it's mind-boggling, right? God knew that there would be a fall. God knew that you would need rescue from your sins. God determined that before anything was. Bavink muses on this, and, and he says, this pact of salvation, however, is inextricably linked to the salvation history affected in time. The covenant of grace revealed in time does not hang in the air, but rests on an eternal, unchanging foundation the counsel and covenant of the triune God infallibly applied and executed. 
Christ does not begin to work only after his incarnation. And the Holy Spirit does not first begin his work with the outpouring on the day of Pentecost. Just as creation is a Trinitarian work, so too recreation was from the start a triune project. All grace extended to the creation after the fall comes to it from the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And so what's being worked, that, that's all I want us to think about this morning. What's being worked out in time in the incarnation was in God's mind from all eternity. I know that's a lot to take in. And again, what is my point? My point is to get you to be in awe of the fact that the eternal triune God, even before creation, had determined to save you and me by the incarnation of his Son. It is not as if God was merely trying to clean up this mess that he realized mankind had made. Right? After the fact. Though that certainly was one of the results of the work of redemption. No, it, it is part of the necessity. Now listen to this. More theology proper. Try to stick with me. It is part of the necessity of his character to show his grace towards sinners. And to express toward them his mercy. It is part of who God is that he expresses grace towards sinners. He did that before there were sinners. Part, and that's why I say it's part of the necessity of his character to, to be gracious. It's part of the necessity of his character to, um, to be merciful. It too is part of the necessity of his character to show his justice towards sinners and pouring his wrath on them or on his son. The history of redemption is, in other words, listen to this, the expression of his divine and eternal character. That's what it is. It's not about you first. It is but it is about God expressing himself as he is. And you get to enter into that. You get to experience that. It's way bigger. It's way bigger than we conceive of it. The history of redemption is, in other words, the expression of his divine and eternal character. This is why in the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit tells us that redemption happened as a demonstration of his righteousness at the present time. A demonstration of his righteousness. That's what redemption is. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It's about his character. So again, what's my point? I only have one point here. This is a short sermon, but it's, it's thick. The birth of Jesus Christ at the fullness of time happened because of who God is, not just because what he had planned, not just because 
you were in a terrible predicament, right? The work of redemption happened because of his character. Nothing he does, unlike us, is out of character. All that he determines corresponds perfectly with who he is. We do things that are out of character, right? That's what sin does to us, right? We, we, well, I mean, we, for the Christian, that's true, right? The Holy Spirit has been poured out in us. Love, the love of God has been poured out in us by the Holy Spirit, and then we go out and hate. God doesn't do things like that. Everything he does perfectly corresponds to his perfect character. So again, what's my point? The birth of Christ is all the proof you need to know who God is. It proves to us that the one true living God is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of forgiveness by His very nature, right? He is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's who God is. And the, the reason we know it most fully is because Jesus took on the flesh by the predetermined plan of God. So Christmas is the ultimate expression in time of God's eternal love, mercy, grace, patience, compassion, and covenant faithfulness. The fullness of time is God's announcement to the world in and through the incarnation of His Son that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That though born in sin, we would be holy and blameless before Him. That He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on the Beloved. You see how all of that comes down to His grace. His character is one of graciousness. He was going to save sinners. He had to save sinners because He is gracious. In the fullness of time, the incarnation of the Son of God, what we celebrate on this day, in other words, is the most glorious demonstration of the wonderful character of God that has or will ever occur, save that final day at the consummation of the ages when God's people take the first sip of wine at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christmas tells us who God is. It's not just the works of God, it's not just things He's done, but we gaze past what He's done and we learn about who God is on Christmas, on the incarnation of His Son. It is the very revelation of Himself as He has been, is, and always will be. The fullness of time is the outworking of God's eternal character in time. And the overwhelming conclusion that ought to make your heart burst with joy is this. It shouts, it demonstrates, it proclaims through all the ages in every place that God is love. God is love. He is love. 
By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Right? He loved us. He is love. He loved us before even the foundation of the world. And that is why Jesus took on the flesh. Zacharias said this in his prophecy regarding the birth of his own son, John. He said, Christ came to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Because God is a tender and merciful God. This happened because God's character is this way. He's tender and merciful. The fullness of time is the love of God bursting into time in the only way that would do justice to the perfection of His gracious and merciful character. Do you see this? Does it fill your heart with joy? Now, a little bit of Augustine here. Um, wonderful quote from Augustine on the, uh, from his book uh, on the Incarnation. And he's sort of, he's musing on these things, and I, I thought that this was helpful. He, he writes, now there are people who say, was there no other way available to God of setting men free from the unhappiness of this mortality? That he should want his only begotten son, God co-eternal with himself, to become man by putting on a human soul and flesh and having become mortal to suffer death? That's the question. Was there no other way that God could do this than that the co-eternal son would humble himself and, and, and take on flesh and not only that but die? Was there no other way, he asks. And here's his answers, answer. And it is not enough to rebut them by maintaining that this way God chose of setting us free through the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, is good and befitting the divine dignity. We must also show, not indeed, that, that, that no other way was available to God, since all things are equally within his power, but that there neither was nor should have been a more suitable way of curing our unhappy state. He goes on, he says, Nothing was more needed for raising our hopes and delivering the minds of mortals disheartened by the very condition of mortality, our sin, from despairing of immortality than a demonstration of how much value God put on us and how much he loved us. A demonstration of the fact that he was love. Right? To encourage us who were just unhappy in our mortality. Unhappy that we die. Unhappy in our sin. He goes on. And what could be clearer and more wonderful evidence of this than that the Son of God, unchangeably good, remaining in himself what he was and receiving from us what he was not. Electing to enter into partnership with our nature without detriment to his own, should first of all endure our ills without any ill deserts of his own, 
And then once we had been brought in this way to believe how much God loved us and to hope at last for what we had despaired of should confer his gifts on us with a quite uncalled for generosity without any good deserts of ours. Indeed, with our ill deserts, our only preparation, right? The only thing we supplied was the sin that had to be forgiven. But, but again, what he's saying here is what I'm trying to convey to you, that Jesus incarnate is the demonstration of the very eternal character of God. He has always been gracious. He has always been merciful. And that was perfectly expressed to all mankind by the incarnation of his son. Okay, and so we always approach Christmas like wonderful that, you know, God, God saved me, that God had this plan for me. But I want to go a step back and say wonderful that God is the kind of God he is that would, by the necessity of his character, Come and save wretched sinners. He's gracious. It's mind-boggling. Right? What kind of God is this? Idols don't, don't serve man like this, do they? You know, the God of Islam has no such character. Does not save a savior, but just determines willy-nilly what to do with whoever comes along. But God, by the necessity of him being filled to perfection with mercy and, and love and, and graciousness, did this. Had to do this. Couldn't not do this for wicked sinners. That's the God you worship. That's the God you serve. That's the one true living God. Glorious in all of his perfections. And so let me bring this to a close. Christmas, brothers and sisters, is a remembrance and celebration of God's incredible love towards sinners. It was and always will be because Jesus will always have a human body. Don't forget that. It was and always will be a reminder of God's grace and kindness toward his enemies. Today we celebrate not merely that Christ took on the flesh, but we celebrate the merciful character of God, who even before the foundation of the world determined to save us. We celebrate the fact that the Almighty God who created all things visible and invisible is by his nature a friend to sinners. There is hope because God is rich in mercy. And the birth of Christ announced to the world that in all ages, God is showing the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We see in Christ's incarnation the full glory of the eternal God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We thank you. We praise you. We, 
we proclaim that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We proclaim that if if your character were not perfect, if your character were not full and filled up and perfect, sinners would have no hope And there would be no rescue from the unhappiness of our mortality. And so as we gaze upon Jesus in the flesh, as we think upon the co-eternal second person taking on a body and a soul like we have, Father, we learn so much about you. So much about your perfection. So much about your kindness. And and so, Father, I pray that we would proclaim the glory of your grace and the glory of the riches and kindness that you have toward mankind to all those around us. That this would be our contemplation this day. And Father, for those who, who think of God as, as um, like in the parable, as a cruel taskmaster, a God who keeps a record of wrongs, a God who, who is harsh and unreasonable, oh Lord, I pray that they would see and contemplate the incarnation to know that in eternal ages you have been gracious. You are love. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill our minds with glorious thoughts of who you are. And that we would, we would just exegete this history in the right way. We do thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that Christ's work uh, did not simply end with him growing up and becoming a man and, and picking up a sword, but that it was growing up, becoming a man, being silent before his accusers, being crucified, dying, rising again, ascending, sitting to your right hand, awaiting the time that you have designated for him to return with a sword, to judge all of the nations, to judge all of the peoples, tribes, and tongues, bringing everything to rest, bringing a culmination of all history to that marriage supper of the Lamb and to Uh, the eternal Sabbath, and to the glory of living in the, the prepared place that Jesus has gone before us to make. God, your, your love toward us is, is mind-boggling. It's so stupendous. Why would you even care for us? We're dust. We are nothing. And yet you have... You've saved us. You've dignified us. You, 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 Jesus has a human body and soul. 
And we are made partakers of the divine nature. And we have, we have this glorious future set up for us. And Father, all of it after we were your enemies, hostile toward you. And so, Lord, we praise you. We praise you that you are filled with kindness and mercy and grace. I pray that those who are wavering, wondering if God is good or God is bad, that you would show them through this history, through this incarnation, the demonstration of your righteousness. And the... the the unfathomable commitment that you have for creatures like us. Oh Lord, we pray that you would bless our day today. Pray that our hearts would be filled with joy in the fact that we know, we know you. And you are good. And you are glorious. And you are kind. And you are merciful and gracious. Pray that our hearts would be lifted. Whatever, whatever burdens, whatever discipline he's bringing to us, whatever difficulties, whatever illnesses, whatever, whatever fears we have, I pray that through faith this day in, in your glorious goodness that we would displace those things and ride on the heights of the earth. We love you. We thank you for your kindness to us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.